Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Morning everyone, this is MJ Network In memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce And we are really excited today We have the author of Salt the Snow, Carrie Callahan And this book is really fantastic Because we're going to talk about a real-life reporter, Millie Bennett. Good morning. How are you? And welcome to MJ Network. Good morning, Fran. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is. And I was really excited to get this book because your publicist just sent it and didn't tell me she was sending it. She just sent it. Which oh. is a nice surprise. I get that a lot. I got a few last <laughs> week. I go like, where did that come from? And they're the ones I really want to read, the ones I don't know about. So oh, you well, decided that's great. You decided to write about Millie Bennett. Why? How come? What made you decide to her? She was interesting, let me tell you. (laughs) Sure, thank you. Yeah, Millie Bennett was a real American woman, a journalist uh, who lived at the beginning of the 20th century. And I first came across her actually when I was doing research for a different project kind of related to my master's degree thesis on the Spanish Civil War. And I didn't use her for that research, but I just found this woman who was writing controversial stories at a time where, you know, we mostly think of men being in journalism, and I wanted to know who she was. So I did a little bit more research about her and just found that she was so interesting, really brave and traveled the world and had uh, tons of lovers and tons of broken Mm -hmm. hearts herself. So she was a lot of fun. She was very interesting. She's my kind of person. She doesn't, no holds barred. I like that. (laughs) She wasn't afraid of anything, was she? No. (laughs) No, she wasn't, except maybe herself. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, at least as I wrote it, um, she had a a lot of journey, or a long journey, to find self-love. So she, she worked for the Moscow Daily Mirror. How is this in line or type of reporting different from the news that was reported in America and during that time period? She was just so different. Yeah, the and the um actually it's the Moscow Daily News. Um and it was a really different newspaper because it was a paper that was produced for English speaking readers, you know, not necessarily Americans, but um foreigners who lived in Russia and particularly Moscow at the time. Because in the 1930s, there actually were a lot of international experts, um, engineers, laborers, newspaper people who had come to Moscow. And so they needed a source of news. And um, the Moscow Daily News was kind of a weird hybrid of a propaganda outlet, partly funded by the Soviet state and um, an actual journalism produced by people like Millie, who had come over from the United States. And Millie came because a friend of hers was running it, 
or at least an acquaintance of hers, Anna Louise Strong, who is also a real woman. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Anna Louise asked Millie if she wanted to come, and it was great timing because Millie had just ended a really disastrous relationship with a, uh, a married man back in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the relationship was destined to be disastrous, I guess. We could have told her that, but... Um, and so she needed a place to, to go and heal. So Moscow sounded like a good idea to her. I don't know about how long it's uh, said like a good idea to her. Well, there's so many little food and so hot. How does she stand yeah. that? I mean, it's like I felt like I wanted to go send them a care package sometime. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, it, the uh, the physical situation was pretty difficult. But, you know, you have to remember it was also during the Depression in the United States. So I think she was kind of used to physical hardship. Millie had also spent some time in China during a war, um, during the Chinese Revolution. And so she maybe expected a certain level of discomfort, although um, so many, I, I based this novel largely on her letters and so many of her her letters were complaining about the cold and how each year she was saving up to buy a slightly better coat than last year's coat. And then she would get that coat and she would be so excited, but then she would still be cold. So it was this uh, constant struggle to try to stay comfortable, which didn't, didn't exactly work out, but it seemed like that was part of just what they, of what they expected. Well, this book took place in two time periods. So in 1934, she enters a home and she finds a secret police there. That's no fun. So why were they allowed to go through her stuff? I mean, they who knows in America with what's going on now that they wouldn't do the same thing. So yeah. why why were they allowed to go through her stuff? And why did they arrest him when she was defending him? And they had proof of this. I mean, it was like almost as if they were living in a, well, it was a communist country. Um, I mean, it's almost as if, like, today the police just walk in and go, like, okay, I'm going to do this. How come they were allowed to do that? Yeah, um, the police did have a tremendous amount of authority. Um, What I found to be interesting about that scene was actually kind of how sort of respectful the officer was. And, again, Mm -hmm. that scene was based off of what Millie wrote um, very, I think, sort of clandestinely. There was only one letter that I found where she was, really frank about what had happened in that search. But um, she came home from a party, or actually not even to her home. She had a a sort of open marriage with a young Russian man named Senya, and she went to his house one night after a party herself. And when she arrived there, everybody who lived in that teeny tiny apartment, which was subdivided from another apartment, was awake because the secret police had showed up and they were searching through Senya's stuff and nobody had any idea what they Mm -hmm. were doing there. He was in the opera. So like you said, you know, it seemed completely baffling to them. Um, And the secret police were just able to to execute the warrant. You know, they did actually have a warrant for him. Um, Millie asked for it and they showed it to her. Um, And the warrant didn't include her, but they still looked through her things that, you know, what things she had that happened to be there. And what could she do? The um, the Soviet Union had control of her passport and they had control of her visa. And although they probably couldn't imprison her, they could certainly kick her out. And she didn't want to be kicked out. So she had to be relatively compliant. And then Senya had no choice. Scary. You know, he just had to do what they said. Yeah, it was really scary for them. 
Mostly for him, God. So we go back to 1931. This is told in two right. time periods. Well, what I had to do was I read the book, then I read the two time periods separately so I get it straight when I wrote the review. This is my brilliance <laughs> for the day. So politics and connections are at the heart of this never. What did she have to do in 1931 to see her husband? And she had to keep going back and forth. They gave her the runaround. They were horrible. I mean, they didn't let her yeah. see it. I don't think they're any different right now either to people, but... Who knows? Yeah. Well, I think that's a characteristic of authoritarian societies that they make it difficult for people to achieve what yeah. they want, and yet they don't necessarily say no. So then the individual is kind of caught in this fight against the bureaucracy that makes you think that you can prevail. So you keep trying, and you're not trying to break the bureaucracy. Instead, you're trying to participate in it. And so... Millie, you know, she had to fill out this form, then she had to fill out that form, then she had to go ask this person for help, and so on and so on. And she she does eventually prevail in getting to see her husband, which was probably because she was American, I'm guessing. Um, I doubt that everybody would have had that privilege. Um, But, you know, she she was persistent. (laughs) I felt so frustrated for her. I mean, and then one time she went there and she thought for sure she was okay, and then they told her no. That was yeah. really, I mean, I, I, got, I wanted to smack him in the head. I mean, really. So Yeah, it was so hard for her and so heartbreaking. And and at the same time, you know, that experience really made her question what her relationship with Senya was. Like I said yeah. earlier, it was an, it was an open marriage, and... Um, and they they had their own issues, and so that's partly why I wrote it in the dual timeline, at least at the beginning, because I wanted to show how mm-hmm. each step in her effort to try to to free him from prison caused her to question something in their past and caused mm-hmm. her to reexamine what was going on in the past, um, as and you know all of that hopefully fit into her journey of self discovery. Which you know is what I said earlier that the novel is in part a story of her learning to learn, learning to love herself. I know that that's what bothered me the most is that she didn't have the confidence in her own self because she was a pretty strong and smart person, but you know sometimes you could be torn down just so much and you can't take it. So right, that's, yeah, isn't that that's funny fair. that she is so bold and and she's yeah. done so many amazing things, but she just can't see her own self worth. I think she needed a mirror, poor thing. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, in both years, the weather plays a vital role. I hate snow. I don't like ice. I don't like harsh winters. And I don't know how she managed. How did she endure this? And why, of all things, because he, I know he was in Russia, why would she want to stay with Russia and not come to America at that point? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, why did she stick with it when it was so hard? Uh, yeah. I think part of it has to go has to do with um, with both what was happening in the world and also her own sort of inherent optimism. So, as, like I said, the U.S. was in the throes of the depression. So Millie was getting letters from her friends back home that were saying, you know, oh, so and so just killed himself out of desperation. So and so just lost his job and his children are starving. You know, so and so just had a miscarriage because, you know, she wasn't getting enough food. So her friends back home were desperate. And I think Millie 
like a lot of Americans who had come to Moscow at that time, she was really curious about, well, is this new model of socialism something different? And could this create a better world for people? Because, you know, in the 1930s, they mm-hmm. didn't know what was coming. They really didn't know. Yeah. And it, um, and it was intriguing to see something new and different. And so she was, I think, in spite of, you know, her own issues, she was an optimistic person and she really wanted to believe that there could be a better world for people. And she wanted to be a part of that. And so I think that's why she stuck it out, that she thought, you know what, this is hard now, but it's going to get better and I can be a part of making it better. So that's why she stayed. I would think that people need to hear that right now. Yeah. Yeah, we need warriors who believe in a better future and, you know, who are going to fight to bring it to us. Well, tomorrow my my broadcast should be interesting because we're going to talk about exactly that. I'm going oh, to bring wow, it. Yeah, perfect. I'm going to do. Yeah, I am doing it with a with a law enforcement person, and he's pretty straight. And we're going to. You're not going to take sides. I'm not going to take sides, but uh-huh. there's got to be a better way to do things than they're doing it. And as I've said to somebody yesterday, if this doesn't stop, the only person that's going to win are the undertakers, the funeral home, and the cemeteries, because people are going to get yeah. sick. Be right. There's too many yeah. people. So. She joined something that must have been very controversial back then, the writers' party's writer union, writing union. What advantages would this give her, and why? The system of unions in the Soviet Union was really yeah. interesting um, because you, you know we think of labor unions here as being like a nice way to to organize and and to get to fight for increased benefits in the workplace and mm-hmm. to to make life better. But their unions was that was kind of the only way that you could thrive. Um, You had to join a union in whatever your profession was in order to get access to more reliable food, to vacation homes, um, to even to health care. So once Millie got into the writer's union, her life got a lot easier. She was able to get a a ration book that allowed her access Mm -hmm. to the better store rather than just scrounging around on either the street markets, which are like kind of illegal, kind of allowed, or the really picked over general market. So then she could go to the writer's store. And then when she got sick, she could go to the writer's dacha, which was a pretty nice place to recover. I mean, I think it was probably still humble, but it was better than nowhere. <laughs> My grandmother so. came from Russia. Oh, really? In a very, uh, in an odd kind of way, yeah. Her mother and father decided that she would come here to work for her aunt, who treated her like a slave. And oh. not until her other aunt came her, so she explained ration books and stuff like that before she died. So I got to learn, I wrote a story in one of my books. So it, it, it's interesting, because unless you live it, people don't really believe it. That's the problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. Where. um Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. So why does Millie think that at one point their lives were getting better? Because actually things in the Soviet Union were getting better. Um, But that's because there was such a low point in the years before. Yeah. The late 19-teens, well, I'm sorry, the late 1920s and then into the early 1930s were very difficult. They had just come out of the collectivization Um, in the Soviet Union and so there was mass famine and people were dying on mass levels 
Mm. And so, um, and even though that wasn't widely publicized, people still knew. And you could see it in Moscow as peasants moved into the city, desperate to try to find a new place to live. And then that meant that there were massive housing shortages in Moscow and food shortages and all sorts of things. Um, And so it just, yeah, it it was evident that situation was bad. But then some of the economic policies that the Soviet Union had had implemented changed a little bit and they had a loosening up and that created an improvement. And then there weren't as many food shortages Mm. going into the early 1930s. And there weren't as many housing shortages as they built new housing buildings and they were starting to work on the, the metro and things like that. So it looked like things were getting a little bit better. Um, and, well, of course, Stalin have... made the most of it and said, life yeah, is better, did, life he? is happy. <laughs> didn't he? They all did. And some of them today yeah. are here are making the uh, – some of them today are today are making profit too. I mean, it's not just them. Yeah. It's, it's up to, I know. I got this, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got Victor. And what part did he have to play in Xenia's arrest? I don't like him. Yeah, poor Victor. Um, Victor was another young man who worked uh, in the opera with Xenia, and he was also a real figure. Um, and like a lot of of um, people in authoritarian societies where they've got a, a secret police that's based on informants, there was a lot of pressure on even loved ones to report on one another. And um, and it seems like Victor was probably one of the people who accused Senya of the thing that he was accused of, which I don't want to say because it's kind of a spoiler. Yeah. But um, but I think in order probably to save himself, I think that that's why Victor uh, made the accusation that he did. Um, and that it's something that Millie reflected in her letters a little bit. You know, she doesn't know exactly what happens, but. She seems to. She thought it was Victor, so that's how I wrote the story. That is, I I just couldn't put this one down. See, everybody complains that I I read fast. I'm a speed reader. Uh huh. And if it if it takes me more than two days to read a book, you got a problem. No, I'm serious. <laughs> no, really, seriously. That's and I was like, good. I just sat down and I said, I don't need eye strain. Okay, I'm going to read this, because once wow. you learn, start to read about Millie, you can't. You have. You want to know what else happens to her. <laughs> and you, ha- and you, you get hung, you get, you get, you know, like hung, like I have to read this. You, know, oh my God! So Millie has a strong personality. She's cool, and men found her attractive, and she was smart. She used that to her advantage, and yet she claimed to be happily married. So why did she fool around? That was well good for her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think part of her behavior was self-destructive because she didn't yeah. um, she didn't have a good sense of self-esteem. Even though she thought she was sexy, you know, there's a difference between thinking that you're sexy and thinking that you're worthy of love. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that she had kind of fallen into that trap. But part of it also, um, like I said, it was an open marriage that she had with Senya. She, she talked about him to her friends. As she mostly called him the boyfriend. She didn't call him her mm-hmm. husband very often. Um, and she mostly, I think, was, you know, more or less monogamous with him while they were together. It was once he, once his fate was a little bit more ambiguous, I think she started looking for affirmation from other men. Uh, and, you know, sort of straying in that sense. But I think all of her issues ultimately were stemming from her lack of, of self-love and self-esteem. 
Well, there are a lot of people like that, and then they self-destruct. That's even worse. And then, of course, mm-hmm. there's people that are nasty and tell you that you're not wonderful, and then they actually believe it. Yeah, and it makes it yeah, even more difficult. Had a lot yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, there were people who were mean to her. <laughs> I know. What a mean world. So what stories did she work on? I didn't like her editor. Why was her editor so hard on her, of all the reporters, but mostly her? Yeah. She's so she, good. One of the interesting things about Millie's work was that she, um, I think she did sort of straddle that line between propaganda and news. Uh, the mm-hmm. Russian editors at the Moscow Daily News did want to stick to kind of the party line of everything is great and, you know, whatever hardships we're seeing now are just part of our progress to the future. But Millie was smart enough to see that things weren't perfect and she wanted mm-hmm. to tell that story. Partly out of a sense of optimism that, you know, if we tell the truth now, that will help us fix things so that we can get better in the future. So it wasn't that she was trying to tear down the Soviet project by any means, but um, she wanted to tell the truth of what she saw. And the editors that she worked for were not interested in that. So one example from her early years, before she gets involved with Senya, is that she goes to a tractor factory, which was... Um, largely populated by foreign engineers, Canadians, Americans, mm. English, and um, all of the the local engineers and their wives, or the Canadian engineers and the Americans and their wives were squabbling amongst one another. And so she wanted to tell the truth about that and about how hard it was at this factory and how, you know, nonetheless, in spite of those difficulties, people were still working, trying to build a better world. But her editor didn't want to hear anything of it. So, and in fact, wanted to then use that to report the people who had complained. And she felt she could not be part of that. She wasn't going to punish the people who had been honest and frank with her. So she destroyed her notes. Well, the media today, I don't think we cared. I think they would just do it. That's what's scary. (laughs) They well, there is some, some talk in the media about protecting sources. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody would have uh, would have risked. Maybe, well, maybe they would risk imprisonment themselves. But that's kind of what Millie was doing by destroying her notes. Yeah, you know, the editor could have reported her, but she took that risk. Well, they fired Ruth, which I thought was really unjust. Why did they fire her? And Millie was determined to do the hardline stories. But why go on the front lines when it's dangerous? I mean, really, yeah. no, seriously. <laughs> yeah, well, she couldn't figure out how much how much risk she wanted to take. But Ruth, yeah. I think, was in some ways um, Millie's sort of guiding spirit in that sense yeah, of taking like Ruth. journalistic r- risks. Yeah, and Ruth was also a real person, and she and Millie wrote stories together that did kind of approach the line of what the propagandists thought was acceptable, mostly through humor. They wrote stories that they thought were kind of poking fun at some of the stereotypes of foreigners who come to Moscow. And um, the, But the, even still, even though it was meant to be in good humor, you know, all in good spirits, the editors didn't like it, and eventually they took that out on Ruth. And they threatened Millie with the same fate, um, which scared her because she didn't want to leave. And if you get fired, you would have to leave. That that's, that 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 it would scare anybody. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially so, you know in the depression when you don't know if you're going to find another job if you go back home. Well, even now, I mean, think about all those people that are out of work. 
That's right, yeah. Even, even, is, even now in unemployment. Mm-hmm. And the people that Absolutely. are not getting helpful. And they, they opened everything up here to, you know, yesterday, but they didn't open up the people that I need to get my hair done in the Bronx. And I don't live in the Bronx, but they didn't, know, they didn't open everything. They opened very little. <laughs> yeah. But up here, where I live in Westchester, they open just about anything. And it doesn't help me. No, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard. There it's are no answers. So, she finally sees her husband in jail. And yet, she knows, we know she moved on. So she moved on to some other man. Millie, Millie, Millie. Mm-hmm. And why did she go to dances and bars with her friends? She seemed to want to validate the fact that she could meet attractive men, and yet she never validated herself, basically. Yeah, she was sort of using her sex appeal as a stand-in yeah. for self-esteem. Um, I think she learned that that's not healthy over the course yeah. of the book, and um, you know, part of it may have had to do also with her struggles with fertility um, at the before the story, even um, when she was in California having that relationship with a married man. Um, mm. She got pregnant, and he pressured her to have an abortion, which I think she she was probably fine with. I don't think she wanted to have a baby, but the abortion, because it wasn't safe and legal, ended up scarring her and um, and made her think that she couldn't have children again. And so I think that probably also contributed to some sense of self-loathing um, because of the hurt that she carried from being you know, from being pressured. I wonder if she would do that people. now with what goes on with STDs and stuff. I think Millie would not do that, but then you, you don't know. Yeah, it's so hard to take somebody out of their time. Um, yeah. You know, I'd like to think that she would be more careful with herself, but uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who, who still engage in hurtful behaviors because they don't know what else to do. Yeah, it's true. So she seems satisfied uh, with where she, but how come she kept getting bumped out of places to live? And then Victor wants to stay with her. I don't <laughs> like him. Yeah. I don't trust him at all. Well, it was amazing how crowded Moscow was in yeah. the 1930s and how much she had to move around and pop around. And uh, I ha- ended up having to keep a list of all the different places she was living and correlate it with what time because it was so hard to keep track. I think there must have been six or seven different residences and some of them she would go back to. But it was because, like I said, people from the countryside were coming, were just streaming into Moscow desperate to find a better life and the authorities could not keep up with the housing demand and so what they did was they subdivided apartment rooms uh, so people would be sharing you know say you had a two-bedroom apartment that was for one family now you would have three families living in that same apartment and everybody because of the Soviet system everybody had to be registered to a certain place where you had to apply and there was a, a local housing committee and it was all very bureaucratized also that you know they could make sure that they didn't have the impression of anyone sleeping in the streets because the visual of that was really important and of course I'm sure nobody wanted to sleep in the streets in Moscow winters but they were just cramming people in and um, for someone who was coming from abroad who didn't have family that she could stay with Millie was kind of at loose ends, um, and she ends up, I think, most comfortably settling in a hotel, which is funny. We think of hotels as mostly being temporary lodging, but in Moscow in the 1930s, a lot of people who had a little bit more means just mm-hmm. lived in the hotel. 
I agree with her. Have a room and it would be their space and, you know, better than being crammed into a communal apartment. (laughs) Well, this is a character that I got angry with. This is Zenya's mother, Olga. Why oh, yeah. I mean, give me a break. Why does she <laughs> think that become that he should go to a hard labor camp and physical work would do him good? What kind of mother in their right mind is going to say that? I mean, really? I know. Yeah. And every I time she went to that. talk with her, she didn't care that this poor man was going to be tortured, killed, whatever. Oh, it'll do yeah. him good. I mean, maybe maybe he'll be dead. You don't care. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. It. Um... She was an interesting woman. She had a lot of nostalgia about the pre-Soviet past, and she was holding on to her czarist rubles because she wanted to believe that someday she would be able to spend them again. So she, in some ways, rejected the Soviet system. And yet, you know, when when she said that about, well, maybe the prison will do him good, I couldn't tell if that was because she was fearful of the Soviet Union or if, and I think this is how I ended up trying to suggest in the book, it's more that she found her son ultimately to be weak, um, that she in a way kind of detested him for his weakness. You know, maybe she blamed Mm -hmm. him in her anger at the state for arresting him. Maybe she blamed him himself, which of course isn't fair. Um, and thought, well, you know, you you did this to me, you deserved it, and I hope that this punishment does you some good. So, you know, people do take things out on their kids. You know, they hit them and um, and do mean mm-hmm. things ostensibly out of love. So I think that's probably what was going on there, but not what I wish she would have done. <laughs> I I know my grandmother, like I said, came from Russia, but and she was very hard. I don't mm. think that in all the years that I knew her, my cousins have a different perspective of her. She never smiled, and she was mean. Wow. Uh-huh. She wasn't very nice. My, my dad had to quit school. He went for to become an accountant, and she made him quit uh-huh. school because my grandfather cut, died, and she made him sell, he sold the mattresses on the black market and a few other things that I found out about later on that were interesting because he was fun, my father, and he wound up becoming the owner of a cleaning store, which is not what he wanted to be. So I know she had a hard life. And my aunts, for some reason, didn't have to endure my grandmother. And my grandmother, I mean, she used to come to visit. Then my grandfather died. She married this monster. He was really horrible. And Uh. unfortunately, when he died, nobody really cared, which is not like us, but he was horrible. (laughs) So she she was like, I, I, I don't know how parents didn't even care. Her sister wanted to come. So she got stuck coming, and, and Bertha was she never smiled. I think I get that from wow. her once in a while, though, but I don't smile. Wow. So yeah, well, you know, so, they talk about um, scientists are still learning about how intergenerational trauma affects people, yeah. and I think it's real. You know that the the pain that people experience does, in many ways, get passed down to their children. You know, partly through that behavior that you're talking about, that she was so hurt probably by her background. She yeah, didn't she smile. Just, she didn't smile. It's funny. When we went to visit her, she would just say, "Sit." Very rarely did we want to go there. Sat there, and she, I said, "I didn't say it for two hours." My sister and I just stared at each other, and I go, "Like, do we have to wow. be here?" Ugh. After a while, I said to my, my, "I live with my grandparents, my mother's parents, and they were so different." My grandmother was my best pal in the world, and Aww. my grandfather too. So it was different. So this, the, the title, "Salt the Snow." How did you come up with that? And it definitely fits because it's cold out there. And every time I see a snowflake, I like, I'm not going out today because whatever. No, I do. I don't care. 
Yeah, there's a scene in the middle of the book, which is just one of my favorites. Um, Millie has had kind of a rough night out, and she is walking Mm -hmm. home through the cold, cold Moscow streets, and she comes across a man who is dipping into his bucket and then scattering salt on the sidewalk, just as if he were sowing seed in the field. And she realized that he was one of these peasants who has Mm -hmm. come into the city and is now working, and he's working in the middle of the night. And so there's a sadness to that labor, and yet there's also kind of an inherent optimism that he is trying to find a better life for himself, and that the simple thing that he's doing of scattering salt to melt the ice, prevent the ice from forming on the sidewalk, is also itself an act of optimism, that we can overcome hardships in order to to walk here and live here together. And so I, I hope that that image would kind of capture how how the book's ethos is, you know, that, that there are hardships, but we can find some mm-hmm. optimism and, you know, Millie can find a way to to grow and to, you know, live in the world that's not so painful. I think people need to read this book so they understand Aww. that there were worse things that happened, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, one, well, one of, one that's of my... That's why we write historical fiction, that's right? right? Yeah. To talk about the past. That's the, I think the past is more interesting than the present when I read books like that. No, I'm serious. Yeah. And um, I've got, I've, I, you know, I, t- I go into the medical offices or the dino or the deli, or whatever, and people know that I review. And the, they, my neighbors here, the porters, and they go, "What do you have for me?" <laughs> and I, I give them, yeah, I literally give them away. Nobody has to go buy books. The libraries oh, are closed, so I, yeah. I am the public library, and the porter's yeah, waiting the for my five books. Yeah, he said that he comes from a foreign country overseas and they don't have any books or anything there. They're very poor. So um, I have about 20 books in a bag I'm going to give them to send over because they don't have books or libraries where he comes from. Oh. And, I, yeah, it makes, and I give him clothes and everything. So everybody's happy. But actually, um, one of my physicians, my dermatologist, won't let me come unless I bring a book. So I'll put <laughs> it on my pile. Yeah, I'm serious. He says, you know, oh, you can't you, you you can't come until you bring something. I go, well, what if I? It doesn't matter. You can't come without a book. <laughs> so, and I get appointments. I get appointments right away. So it does help. So yeah, that's this, funny. This book took this book took place in so many different places. How did you decide on the different scenes? Then we're going to get to some other people. Yeah. Um... I mostly just followed Millie's life. I had mm-hmm. access to her letters through the archives at um, the Hoover Institute in, in Stanford. And so I decided to focus on her time in, Mex- in Mexico, in Moscow, because it was a time that she herself wanted to write about but could not. And um, and then she also spent some time in Spain as part of that story, too, and Spain mm-hmm. is a personal love of mine, and you know it was a great hardship for me to take a research trip to Spain back when we could do those mm-hmm. things. And oh, so I loved right. getting to to go to Spain and see some of the places that she had been. I stayed in the hotel that she stayed in. I looked oh, nice. at the building that she um, that she worked in, and so that was really special. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just I tried to make it as real to her life as possible because I think we are in many ways shaped by our landscape and the places that we live. So I want to try to reflect that in my writing. Well, you did. It's very authentic. And besides the fact that I knew your research was right, because when I get a book about a real person or a real event, I do my I do my research too to backtrack. 
So uh-huh. I, I learned about. I, yeah, that's just me. Yeah. Um, one when one of my my second masters was in reading, and the professor that I had taught me how to look deeper than what's on the surface of the book. So that everybody mm-hmm. complains that you get you get what the book is about, even if I don't. The author <laughs> and go like, yeah, okay. <laughs> So he, oh, I, le- I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot, and that's the fact that my mother made me read six or seven books a week and take notes on them, and I had wow. no choice. Yeah, my mom was tough. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. You, know, you never yelled, never yelled, never raised her voice, never screamed. She just gave you the Ruthie look, and you know, just just I used to say, yeah, whatever, <laughs> mom, don't worry about it. I got this. So that's before funny. I forget, tomorrow, um, FBI agent Michael Tabman and I are going to talk about. America, we're all in this together. That's the title of my show. Um, mm-hmm. On the 15th, the author of Emilio's Garden, she comes from Costa Rica. And on the 17th, one of my favorite people in the universe, he's a journalist. He goes under two names. It's Dick Belsky, but he's going under Dana Perry, the Golden Girl. And, yes, I got the book yesterday and read it and gave him the question. Wow. I, I couldn't put it down. It was fantastic. His new That's character, great. Jesse Tucker, is great. On the 22nd, um, uh, Enemy of the Doves, and on the 24th, I do panel shows a lot. And I, I, I really, chanting up, we have five people, five authors for this one. They all write in the first person, so we're going to talk about voice and how a person's character's voice comes through in your writing and anything else that comes up in my mind. And on the 30th, tentatively, the last show until August, because I don't do July, Pastor Michael Jones will be here, and he's going to guide us in how to be nicer to each other in these difficult times. I Aww. thought that was really good. Yeah, yeah what a good one I, to close on. Yeah, I did one with um, Minister Sam Oliver. We talked about stress, healing, uh, stress, healing cures, and, and stress, and anxiety, and a whole bunch of that, and soul care. And I did one with uh, a psychoanalyst, um, Yes, I can wait. I'll see it. Dan, Dennis Palumbo, we talked about anxiety and stress in the time of the COVID virus and how you deal with anxiety and stress, and we defined it. So mm. tell us about Captain Merriman and who is Herman and who is Marion. We're going to get to the later part of the book, later part of the book, later part. Oh. Yeah, um, Bob Merriman was also a, a real man. He was mm-hmm. a um, a young economist who was very interested and again, what was happening in the Soviet Union with regard to, in his case, I think his expertise was agriculture. So he wanted to do some economic studies of what was happening with Soviet agriculture. So he and his young wife, Marion, who have this really sweet love story that um, that he writes about in, in his memoirs, um, they moved to Moscow in the 1930s. And while they're there, they meet Millie. Um, and Marion got a job at the Moscow Daily News where Millie worked. Um, mm-hmm. So they they knew each other. They socialized. Um, in fact, Marion wrote that she thought Millie drank too much, which is probably true. Um, and then later on, they, they all end up going to Spain, um, partly because of, of the war that's happening there. And Marion, or rather Millie, I think, was so moved by the sweet relationship that Bob and Marion had together that she um, she felt strongly for both of them and she wanted to protect them and to help them. And I think probably she learned a little bit from them too about um, about devotion and love and, and how 
you know, that can, that sort of relationship can really ennoble you as well as the other person. So that friendship, I think, was important to her. And Robert Marion was a pretty interesting man, and he's rather controversial among people who study the Spanish Civil War. Some people say he's Mm. a hero, and some people say that he was a poser who let other people do the work for him. I tend to think he was probably a good man doing his best, so that's how I tried to write him. I liked him. That's good. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, now, this is interesting. She had another friendship with Constancia, and who is Kaja? Kaja. <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking up how to pronounce the name is K-A-J-S-A. I was looking up how to pronounce yeah. that, and it got a 5 out of 5 on the difficulty score for names. I think it's Karitza. Karitza, um, there's no I there. I just thought it was Kaz. Yeah. Kaj, yeah. It's a Swedish name, um, and oh, according no to the Internet, it's something like that. I don't speak Swedish, so forgive me, anyone who does. Um but so Constancia was a Spanish sort of aristocrat woman who became a journalist during uh, the Spanish Civil War, working for the Republic, which was the original government of Spain, the sort of leftist government that was then being challenged by the right wing military that was trying to overthrow it. And that's what caused the war. So Constancia was working for the um The propaganda ministry, which is what they called it, but that's because propaganda didn't have the negative connotation then that it does now of being untrue. For them, it meant the story that we think we need to tell rather than Mm -hmm. lies. (laughs) So that's what Constancia was working for, and she really, she was, in actuality, Millie's supervisor or one of the supervisors. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I wrote them as, as having a relationship and a friendship and Constancia is really interesting lady and um and there has been some research in Spanish done about her. And then Katya was also a real woman. She was a, a Swedish girl who or a young woman who actually fought um at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War with the informal forces from who came from all over the world to come fight on the side of the Republic. But then a few months into the war, they ended up kicking out women. So she had to leave the front and, um, and she went to Valencia, which was where Millie was spending some time. And she and Millie struck up a friendship such that they continued corresponding even after the war. Um, I think Katia was a really interesting lady herself. I wish I knew more about her. There's not that much information out there about her, but, um, she was tall, Swedish, and it sounds like she was really sweet and brave and mm. did her best to be a good friend. Well, then she liked to work. She wrote for the Farm Press for a while. And yeah. her account of the front lines get her angry. And the story is burned, and they don't print it. That uh, that got me angry. They're like, <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, she works, she, and it was an honest story. It wasn't like she was making it up. Nobody wanted to hear the truth, did they? Yeah, yeah. I, I dramatized the burning, but there definitely was a lot of tension yeah. over how much um, foreign reporters were allowed to report about the difficulties that the Republic was facing. Um, and this was because the Spanish Republic was sort of in a bind. Um, they were being told by the international community that they could not purchase weapons abroad, whereas the right-wing republic or the right-wing military was also told that it couldn't purchase weapons abroad but is the military's allies were the fascists 
And so um, Mussolini and Hitler had no problem ignoring that international prohibition and giving weapons to the military, whereas the republic's natural allies would have been France and Great Britain and the United States. And because those countries were afraid of igniting a broader conflict, they didn't support the republic. So the republic was really trying to use its press to convince people to support us. And because they didn't want to look like they were losing, they wanted to look like we, we're we a cause worth investing in. We're not a lost cause. You should help us. So for them, the stakes were pretty high in terms of what they reported. But Millie thought, just as she thought in the Soviet Union, that we're better off telling the truth. That if the truth is that we're losing here and that we need help, then we should tell people that. And so that's what she was trying to do. Um, but her editors just, yeah, you know, they took a different view of it and they didn't want to hear, they didn't want to publish the truth because they thought it was too risky to the cause. I don't think they want to tell the truth today either. <laughs> it's so risky to somebody that doesn't know what he's doing. That's so sad. It's, yeah, the truth is always risky. You know, it's hard for, for people to tell the truth when it's a difficult subject. Uh, we feel scared and vulnerable. That's why you're told. I, somebody said something to me the other day, and I said, "If you don't want the answer to your question, then don't ask it, because you're going to get the you're going to get an honest answer." And <laughs> that's just the way. Yeah. So now we come to somebody that I got to like. His name is Hans. So mm-hmm. how does she meet him? And what happens? Finally, happens to Zenia. I felt so bad for this poor man. His mother needs a you know <laughs> a parenting skills. This poor lady. I know, yeah. I, I don't want to say exactly what no. happens to Senya because I think that's no. part of the, the yeah. tension of the book. But um, but he he has both, I will say, I think, a happy and a sad ending. Um, that yeah, I know. That was pretty true, you know, as far as I could tell in the research. Um, so um, when there is a moment when Millie kind of is looking for, for love elsewhere, and um, and she's in Spain, and she meets... A, uh, an American man who is fighting for those international forces that had come actually illegally to help mm-hmm. the Spanish Republic fight against the, the right-wing military. And so she meets this quiet, rather stoic, um, self-effacing American, and she's intrigued by him. You know, he's very different from the men that she had previously had a relationship with. He really goes out of his way not to draw attention to himself. He's very concerned about making sure that the men in his unit get everything they need. He never takes credit for it, um, you know, which is a little bit in contrast to Bob Merriman, who did take a little bit more credit for the leadership of his unit. Han just sort of stands back um, and and lets Bob take the spotlight. And I think Millie wanted to know more about him because of that, you know, who is this man? And uh, and they end up developing a relationship that gives her, I think, some hope and some sustenance. So, oh, I'm some woman here. What was what was her primary goal? Was it her own survival to prove that she could really do this, or why did she do all of this? I mean, somebody like her is amazing because no one in their right mind would do what she did all the time. <laughs> Yeah, she would probably tell you she wasn't in her right mind a lot of the I know, time. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, you know, especially when she, when the story starts and she's just moving to Moscow, she is absolutely not in her right mind. She has just ended this really heart-wrenching relationship with the married man. 
she got the offer from Anna Louise Strong to come to Moscow, and she literally dropped everything and ran within seven days of receiving the cable offering for the job in San Francisco. She manages to get all across the continent over to New York to get on a ferry and leave. So she just, you know, completely up, overturned her life so that she could try to escape her pain. So she really wasn't in her right mind. But I think what made her stick with it was that continuous sense of optimism that she had that if she could put her shoulder to the wheel, she could be a part of making the world better. And she never wanted to give up on that, probably because it gave her life meaning. Um, And I think also because she was inspired by her mother. Her mother was someone who who sacrificed a lot for her children. Um, Millie's mom worked as a a janitor, um, even though I think she probably was capable of a lot more than that. But um, Millie's father had passed away when they were young, and so then they just had a single mom to support them. And her mother worked, uh, in spite of a lot of physical pain, without complaint, every night cleaning schools. And I think that showed Millie that um, you know, it's important sometimes to put your own personal comfort aside and work for what you think is right. And Millie tried to live by that in her life. You know, I'm, I'm looking at something um, that's so weird. And I know that this has got to be wrong. It's, I know she, she died um, and she was 60 years old. But if you look at Wikipedia, which I, I know I know I wrote this down, it says May 22nd, 1897, and she died in 1960 at 102. I don't think so. <laughs> and, that, and I said, wait a minute, am I, is this lady really was 102? No, she was. Then I found no. it on another site, and, and they didn't correct it. It's wrong. I know it's wrong. Yeah, no, no. She she died in her 60s. Um, yeah, so I said, yeah, but this is like, I can't believe they, 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 they didn't know it. Well, Okay, we have Russian <laughs> rules and curfews. Yeah, Wikipedia. <laughs> Russian rules and curfews and guards and the police, plus the weather would anger and depress anyone living in Russia. Yeah, how did this and more get her to want to leave and move back to the United States? And was she happier here? I hope. Poor Millie. Um, you know, so this is you know maybe where my fictional Millie and the real Millie might be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think my fictional Millie was a little bit more content than perhaps the real Millie was. It's hard to know, of course, but um, in both cases, though, I think Millie was satisfied with having stuck to her truth. Um, She was proud of having a relationship with a man that she loved and felt loved her back, even though, um, you know, it wasn't always easy. And one of the things that um, that Millie constantly grappled with through her life, which was very common for people of the left at that time, was whether or not to join the Communist Party. And she never did because she just couldn't sign up to anybody else's ideals. You know, she always wanted to make up her own mind about things, even though she had a lot of sympathy for the ideas of communism in the sense of you know making the world better for poor people and for workers and things like that. But she just couldn't sign herself up for it, ultimately. But I think she was proud for resisting the pressure from the FBI that she faced at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, this yeah. is during the, the anti-red uh, sort of pressure from McCarthyism and stuff. And 
and um, some of the, the work that's been done on her, people talk about how the FBI did continue to harass her, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, showing up at her door, knocking, threatening her, and she never, she was never intimidated by it. She didn't turn anyone else in. She didn't confess to the things they wanted to, her to confess to, which, you know, I think she didn't have anything to confess to. Um, she hadn't done anything wrong. And she just withstood that pressure in a way that I think she was probably proud of. So um, though she didn't get to publish the novel of her life that she wanted to, I think um, she had a lot of things to be proud of. And she knew that she had done incredible things in her life because she handed over her papers. She held on to her papers throughout her life. She kept carbon copies of all the many letters that she wrote while she was in Moscow and or, or and earlier and later um, all throughout her life. She kept that and then she gave it to a friend to to pass on to an archive after she died and that friend did um, because she knew she had done something worthwhile and I think that's pretty that's pretty cool. I think she was pretty cool. So my question is before we end, if Millie was alive today, what kind of news would she report and where would she work? <laughs> That's a great question. It is, of course, you know, a little difficult to imagine lifting her into today, but I suspect she would probably work for somewhere that was very interested in the the lives of marginalized people um, and the lives of the poor and probably not a large outlet, like I said, with regard to joining the Communist Party. She just couldn't really join mm. bigger organizations because she was always the dissenting voice, no matter what it was. I think I may have included this in the party. Somebody joked that she was destined to be the leader of a minor opposition party, no matter where she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a contrarian streak. So I could envision her maybe writing for something like Mother Jones or um, working for a labor union in their trade publication, um, something that's kind of on the smaller scale. You know, not she wouldn't write for the New York Times. She wouldn't write for the Washington Post or, or Fox News or any of the big national networks. I think she'd do might something do smaller 12. and more narrowly focused. Yeah, maybe, or maybe do maybe Channel 12. Even, yeah, yeah, exactly. So something like that. So what is next for you, and where can everybody learn about more about your work? Um, I am, well, <laughs> I am working on a novel right now, but I will confess that it's pretty hard to find the uh, the emotional and creative space with all of the the trauma that's going on in our country at the moment. But um, mm-hmm. I am working on a, a novel that's... Um, a feminist retelling of Ivanhoe set in Spain oh, nice. during the Spanish Civil War. Um, I'm really interested in the Spanish Civil War. And uh, and so I'm having fun with that. That's what's coming up. Um, and I'm on the Internet, and it's just my name, Carrie Callahan. The last name has a V. So I've got a website, um, Instagram, Twitter, and all of that. So you're working with a phenomenal publicist, Jennifer Vance. She's, I just emailed her. <laughs> and I just sent her the link for the show. She loves me. And she, she'll send things out of nowhere. She's like, I, you you do want to read that? I go like, what? I mean, I have <laughs> I, the sad part is that I've had some New York Times uh, authors, publicists, ask me to read some really great books, and they don't have um, print copies. Oh, and yet there's yeah. some people, and then yet there's a couple that said, oh, we'll get you one. I go like, why? Anyway. <laughs> so I yeah, hope I well, get that. Oh, good. 
Yeah, I think publishing is struggling right now, trying to figure out how to stay afloat. And I I certainly hope that they succeed. I hope people have found a lot of solace in books. I I hope so, too. And that's what I'm hoping to do for everybody is to, you know, to promote their book, to read them. And let's everybody just get this straight. Fran doesn't get paid to do anything ever. No, I don't don't take money for book reviews because you don't get paid for my opinion. Um, That that would be biased. Second of all, I don't get paid for my interviews. I just do them because it's fun. Keeps my mind off of everything. And and I'm my next book. I'm hoping comes out next month. It's called What If. What if you lived in one of the worlds that I created, and you were able to experience what I created with this person? Would you realize we're in a better world right now? And the cover of the book, um, my husband picked it. It's just a man cool. that's going somewhere, but he doesn't look like he's going anywhere. And that sounds really interesting. Very yeah, evocative. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wrote it because this pandemic has really gotten everybody down. And I said, what would you do if you had to live in these kind of worlds where there were things really are crazy that happened? I mean, and one is um, the title of the story. The next to last story is called Confinement. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. It's just a lady that's afraid to go outside, and she hoards and whatever, however she gets food. At the end... She goes outside, but what she sees on the other side, well, I can't tell you. It was scary. <laughs> it's just right out of the twilight zone. I go like, I don't know where I came up with this. The only thing is wow. I'm waiting for people to give me blurbs. I sent the book to 12 people. One gave me a blurb. My, one of my students is reading it, and one of the parents of one of, the, of the, one of my students is reading it also, and they said they liked it. I said, oh, tell me. Write something. Anyway, thank you so <laughs> yeah, very cool. much for today. Um, do you do panel shows? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, well, I, I do them on, the last one I did was two weeks ago, and the authors were getting worried because it was, how do you pick your villain? How does your villain choose the person they're going to kill? Why is that person going to be dead, and how do they do it? And I learned oh, a lot. So at the end of the show, they said they were worried about that I learned too much. <laughs> but, yeah, seriously. And these are famous, these are New York Times authors. I was hysterical laughing. But it was a lot oh, of fun. fun. So. <laughs> uh, I will let you know. I, I we do I do historical novels. I do a lot. John Land writes a lot of historical novels. He's great. His his novels cool. go back to the past and the present. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much, everyone. Thank it's you, beautiful Fran. outside, and thank you. And I hope you send me a next book when it comes out. Oh, thank you, and thanks for everything you do for authors. I think the bookish community is so wonderful. How supportive everyone is, and I'm grateful yeah, for your is. part in it. Thank you. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.